Um, so yeah, like Andy said, uh, I'm speaking uh, for the third week on the book of Job, and we come today to the end of our Suffering Stories section in our Living in the Story series, where over this academic year we're following um, kind of the big story of Scripture, the whole arc of Scripture. How do these things that we read in the Old and New Testament all kind of fit together, and how do they point to and reveal Jesus to us, and then how do we live in the light of the things that we see in in the Bible. Three weeks on Job on one hand is not nearly enough to kind of tackle this hugely complex subject. It's a really small offering on something that is um, really quite big and it's also a very long book so we've done a kind of whistle-stop tour across it. And yet, on the other hand, three weeks on Job is maybe kind of three weeks too many for some, because the subject is so jarring, and it's so intense, and it's close to home in some regard for so many of us, because we know as we open our news feeds that we see suffering is all around us in our world, and as we contemplate our own lives, we know that suffering is often on our own doorsteps as well. The book of Job offers no simple answers. And, spoiler alert, there is no simple answer to the question or the reality of suffering in our world. But I hope that today, as we come to the end of this book, that we will see that there is something. That there is something that is offered to us. And that something, I think, is quite significant. We've considered how we can navigate the stormy waters of a time of suffering. We've considered how we can be with others in their suffering And today we'll consider what God might say in the place of suffering. So just to give you a little kind of recap, the book of Job starts with these two chapters at the beginning of kind of setting the scene. Then we have 34 chapters of speeches or oration, poetry, um, of this back and forth between Job and his friends as they try and bring answers and accusations about the kind of reason for his suffering. And interjected throughout those 34 chapters, we hear the very normal and expected cry of Job at different points as he asks God to speak, as he asks God for help, as he wonders if God has abandoned him, as he is questioning absolutely everything, which is something that most of us, if not all of us, can attest to as being a very normal reaction in a hugely difficult time. In the preceding 34 chapters, lots of things have been said by a few different people, but none of them so far have been said by God. Job's friends have spoken, Job himself has spoken, and God has not until this point. And so I'm going to read from chapter 38, just the first 18 verses. It's going to be on the screen behind me so you can follow along or you can just listen as I read. This is Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? 
Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. It's just the first 18 verses and the rest of this chapter and the following few chapters go into that same level of detail on stars and on constellations, on animals, on beasts of the sea and the land. More of these same questions coming at Job. But I want to focus on some of the details of the very first part of this chapter and see what we can learn about God in the place of our suffering and in the suffering of others. So firstly, the first thing I think we see is that we are met with a God of presence. The opening of chapter 38 says that the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And scholars on Job say that this whirlwind is a metaphor for um, the overwhelming presence of God, or the overwhelming power of God. So it's no small thing. That's what we learn from that. It's no small thing. The whirlwind rages and in the lashing and the crashing, God comes to speak with Job. So what do we learn about God here? Well, I think we learn uh, what we see is a God who is present in chaos and most importantly, in command in the midst of chaos. And that's not the first time in scripture that we see that. In Genesis 1, we read of the spirit of God that hovered over the chaos and formed life and light and everything out of it. A God in command of chaos. We read in Exodus 3 of Moses, who, like Job, also heard God speak out of a place of chaos. Not a whirlwind in that case, but a fire. A bush that was raging with flames, but not consumed. God in command of chaos and also very, very present in the midst of it. And it's not even just limited to the spectacles of the Old Testament. Jesus spoke peace, be still, to a raging and chaotic sea. God again in command of chaos. The whirlwind, as with our suffering, is often undeniably powerful. And God was present in the midst of it. If you've been poring over the pages of Job, which I can imagine you probably have been, what a cheery November you have had. Maybe you caught a lament that he made in chapter 9, which I think tells us something else of what we learn about God here. 
In chapter 9, in one of his answers to his friends, Job speaks of the calamity that he feels God has brought on his life. And he speaks of the great many fears that he has and kind of um, imagines all these different things that have happened to him or could happen to him, the different things that he is fearful of. And one of the things that he is fearful of is the God who crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. And that word tempest you could easily interchange with great wind or whirlwind. The chaos, the tempest, the whirlwind, the chaos of his life and of his circumstances and even God himself he feared would crush him. His expectations of God in that response to his friends are of a God who does not care for him and who would allow him to come to ruin, which is what much of his actual experience probably feels like. So why does that detail matter? Why does it matter that God came to Job in the whirlwind? I think it's because, well, it shows me that God comes to Job and speaks to Job from the very place that he was fearful of. Job thought the whirlwind, the tempest, would crush him completely and be his end. But God creates a very different reality, and it's a reality that was really personal to Job. The presence of God in the midst of a very personal fear. This speaks to me of a personal God who is coming to Job who knows him. When we are suffering, sometimes God feels very far away or impersonal or busy. But when I read this, I am reminded of the God who is present to us in ways that speak to our fears and our worries and one who is unafraid of and ultimately sovereign over the chaos that suffering brings. We are met with a God of presence. And secondly, we're met with a God of promise. There's another detail here in this first sentence. We're still in verse 1, just in case you were interested. I promise we will get beyond it at some point. But across the rest of Job, in the rest of the book, God is referred to many times. And if you've been around church for any length of time, or if you've read the Old Testament a lot, then you'll know that there are many different names that are given to God. And they all mean kind of slightly different things. They show us a different part of God's character, of what he is like. And throughout Job, God is referred to with several ancient names. El, or Eloha, meaning just God, really more of a title, um, the God, true God. Um, and also God is referred to as Shaddai in Job, which means almighty God. So these are kind of the names that are bounced around for God across the rest of Job. This is how he's referred to until verse 1 of chapter 38, when God finally speaks. And in our translations, we don't get it because it just reads the Lord came to Job, or the Lord spoke to Job, or God spoke to Job. But in Hebrew, the word that is used here for the very first time in this book is Yahweh. Just another name for God? Don't read too much into it, Naomi. I'm afraid I have read into it. Why does that detail matter? Why does that matter? We've waited 38 chapters, and now we hear from Yahweh. Well, this is poetry, 
right? That's what we're reading. Those 34 chapters are, are pure poetry. And if you've read or studied any poetry in your life, then you will know that everything means something. Everything can matter. And so this change, though it is subtle and only known to us when we read it in the original language, so it's a little bit of a mystery, it's really important. Then Yahweh spoke to Job from out of the whirlwind. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel, the God of the Israelites, the Israelite people of God's people, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. But Job's not an Israelite. We learned that from chapter one when we read that he was from a land called Uz, which is far away from the land of ancient Israel. So why does God come to him as Yahweh? It doesn't make much sense. Who is Yahweh in this moment? Well, I think that here Yahweh is the God of the promise. Remember all those covenant promises that we've been thinking about over September and October? We learned about God's covenant promise to Abraham. We learned about God's covenant promise to David in October. These covenant promises, eternal and enduring promises, were spoken and were given by Yahweh, God of promise. The God who comes to Job here in the pit of his desperation and despair is the God of covenant promise, Yahweh. The God who forms dynamic relationships with his humanity. He is not removed. Yahweh is not far removed. Job and his friends throughout had spoken of God in titles, really. The God. And that's not unimportant. It's not to be dismissed. But God, when he speaks, when it's his turn, he comes as Yahweh. The God who makes and keeps eternal, everlasting covenant promises. So why does that matter? Why does that matter when you're suffering? Am I just having a nice time up here telling you about some Hebrew details? No. In the place of suffering, thinking beyond your circumstances becomes pretty hard. And in many cases, everything kind of narrows and shrinks You adjust to your unwanted new normal and you just try and keep going and a perspective beyond a few days can be quite hard to even grasp. Many of you will know because I've shared this a few times over the years, but my dad died when I was 19 and at that point my whole world shrank. It became very small and I didn't possess a mindset beyond like the week that I was in, never mind anything beyond that. And the thing that I was so aware of at that time was how my future had completely and irrevocably changed. There's a verse from the Bible that stuck with me over these last 16 years, and it was shared by a friend of my dad to us, a pastor friend of his. On the day of his funeral, he was praying with us just before we left for the church. And he prayed a verse over my family, which was this from Deuteronomy 33, 27. And it says, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. 
And that verse then was of great comfort, and it still is of great comfort now. But I've been reflecting on why. Why is that of comfort? And the conclusion that I've come to is because it creates a perspective of who God is for me and for you and for Job in the place of unbearable pain. It welcomed me into a perspective of God that I could not garner for myself. It reminds me that God and his promises and his faithfulness are not just for now and for this moment, but they are eternal. And his comfort and his commitment and his care are not just for this moment now, but they are everlasting. It shows me and it has shown me that Yahweh was still Yahweh in my very different future. Everything else had changed, but he had not. And I wonder if that is what God wanted Job to know in coming in this way as Yahweh. Showing Job that he is a God of promise, of eternal, enduring, covenant, faithful promise that will endure in the midst of the whirlwind of suffering and that will extend into a new and different future well beyond the stretch of his life and our own lives. He is a God of promise. And thirdly, I think we're met with a God who remembers. In this speech that we read, and that goes on for a few chapters, there are a few ways, I think, that we can kind of interpret God's tone here. At times when I've read it, it can feel majestic, and it can feel really awe-inspiring. But then when I think about it in the context of being said to Job, it can feel maybe a little harsh. Anybody else there with me? I kind of project my own tone onto the reading. But when God says... To Job, this down-and-out man who's having like the toughest time ever, I will question you. Stand like a man. Where were you? Surely you know. Tell me if you have understanding. All these rhetorical questions. It might lead me, the removed reader, to a feeling of awe. But when I read it and I think of Job, the interpretation could be a little bit more difficult. Right? Just me? Maybe not. He's already having a pretty tough time. Is God just giving a litany of the many things that he has done that we and Job have no idea of? In one way, yes. In one way, yes, he is. We've spoken a few times over this longer series of um, our tendency to put human parameters on God and on the things that we expect of him or how we view him. And this, in this proclamation, we are led to remember with awe that God is God. God is God and he does things and holds things that we just have no comprehension of. And that is a really important perspective of God to have. Because the moment that I start to apply my human expectations onto God, that is the moment that I begin to reduce him in my mind to just another part of my life or my experience. He becomes an addition to my life rather than the author and creator of it. 
the awe that we experience in Job here is really necessary. But in the place of suffering, awe can be pretty hard to come by. So what else might God have been doing here? I've spoken today about God being a present God, God being a God of eternal and enduring promise. There's something kind of compassionate and relational in those aspects, isn't there? And so as we read this section and wonder about its content, I want to suggest that we do see a compassionate God here. I think we see a God who remembers. Why do I say that? Well, let me take you back. Let me take you back to one of the very first things that Job says. In chapter 3, after all of this awfulness has happened, the very first thing that Job says is he, he prays this lament. And it's desperate, and it's sad, and it shows kind of the full depths of his suffering. But let me show you something about these two chapters. Maybe you've already clocked it, but it felt pretty revelatory to me. In Job 3, there's this kind of running theme of creation imagery. There's darkness and light. He talks about clouds and days and the sea and the stars and dawn and dusk and morning and night. In this lament, what we see Job doing in Job 3 is he wants to undo life and light. And he wants to enter into darkness. This lament is kind of a cry for the reversal of creation. And we don't know if in this prayer he expects God to hear him. He doesn't mention God and he doesn't address God here. He just laments. And then, however many days and months or years pass, we don't know, the timeline of Job is pretty foggy. And his grief continues. When God speaks in chapter 38, I do not think that the things he speaks first are a coincidence. I do not think that the things that he chooses to address to Job are just to inspire awe in him. I think they may be to show Job that he heard him in his pit. He remembered him then and he knows him now and he knows every word that he has uttered since. Job says, let that day be darkness, verse 4. Let the stars of dawn be dusk, let there be no light or morning, verse 9. Job says, let that night be barren, let no joyful cry enter it like that of a newborn. And he laments his very birth, verse 7. Job says, sighing comes to me instead of my bread, and my groaning is poured out like water, verse 24. Job speaks of light and of dark, and God says, I commanded the morning. Since your days began, it's me that has caused the dawn to know its place. I know the way to the dwelling of light, Job, and I know the places of darkness, the darkness that you are in and the darkness of every other place. I know every star and every constellation. The ordinances of heaven belong to no one but me. I heard you, Job. Let me tell you who I am in that place. Job speaks of barrenness and God turns it around on him again, pointing to him and saying, has the rain a father? From whose womb did the ice come forth? In chapter 39, he asks Job, do you know, Job, when the mountain goats give birth, those that are unseen by most humans? 
Do you observe the calving of the deer, these hidden and secretive animals? No, you don't, Job, but I do. I do. I heard you, Job. I heard what you said. I was listening. Let me speak to you. Job speaks of bread and of water, necessities to continuing life. And God speaks then of rain in the desert that causes the grass to grow. And he speaks of food for the lion and the raven. Do you see the correlation? They're all poetic. It's all kind of poetic language. But there is, I think, an undeniable correlation here. For nearly every lament that Job brought all the way back then, God remembered and he spoke directly into it. It may have taken a while for God to speak, but when he did, I believe that he showed Job that he had heard him. Not just that he's awesome and mighty, but that he heard him. That he listens. And as much as he holds all of these incredible things together and does more than Job or you or I could comprehend, he also holds Job together in his suffering. It's not an answer. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be. God doesn't tell Job why even though he asked. Because what answer would suffice? What answer would suffice? What would make Job say, oh, okay, yeah, like fair, fair deal, actually, that, that makes a lot of sense now. What would make him say that? What would make any of us say that? What God does here is he brings Job himself again and again and again. He shows Job that he is present with him in the whirlwind, speaking to him directly from the swirling of his suffering. He shows him that he is Yahweh, God of promise, eternal and faithful through every crest and valley. And he shows him that he heard and he remembered and he wasn't absent, and he is bigger and greater than every question or doubt or cry. And then the book ends. The poetry finishes after a few chapters, and we have this conclusion entitled, God Restores Job's Fortunes, where we read about Job receiving wealth and loads of animals, like a lot of animals, and more children. Which when we read it, I don't know, maybe you read it in a different way to me. Maybe you read it and think, gosh, isn't that amazing? What a fantastic ending. I read it and I think like, I'm sorry, what just happened? It's the end of Job. How satisfactory is this? Job has just gone through this complete nightmare for like a really long amount of chapters. And if it's long for us in chapters, like can you imagine what it was like for him in his life? Then God speaks and Job repents and then God restores the end. Is it really quite as simple as that? Was it a test? Did Job pass? Is that what God does? We suffer lots. We do what God wants and then we might get everything restored to us. I'm simplifying it. But these seven verses that end Job can feel pretty confusing and conflicting. 
And I've reflected on them lots. And I think what I've come to today is that the end of Job, it does show us a God who restores and who is capable of restoring. But I wonder as well if it's about a God who rebuilds. Because beyond the gates of great trial and pain, life does continue. Doesn't it? Life is also possible. A new life, a different life, not what we wanted or expected, but it can still be good. It can still be very, very good. We don't know the timeline of those seven verses, but Job's life was gradually rebuilt, I think, and God was present and faithful in the midst of the rebuilding, in the redemption. Did Job forget what had happened? I don't think so. He had more children. What an amazing thing. Did he forget those that he had lost? No. Of course not. I don't think God ever expected him to. There was redemption in Job's story. But the whole of Job points us to a greater redemption. And as we come into December, we will be, as you would expect, looking to Jesus. And who was Jesus? The suffering servant, the one who took on flesh and all of its pains, the one who questioned God if he had left him too on the cross. And the one who asked for his suffering to be removed from him in the garden. And yet also the one who is God and who endured so that we can know all these things too. So that we can know a God who is more present with us than we could imagine. Who is faithful to every promise he's made. Who remembers that which even we have forgotten who speaks directly into our lives and our circumstances and who rebuilds and who restores and who redeems again and again and again. We want to know why Job is suffering, right? I mean, really, we want to know why we suffer. And perhaps this book shows us something more than what we desire. Because a suffering person will always exclaim, why And the answer is rarely because. Rather, it seems that God says to the one who is suffering in the deep place, here I am. I am is here. I am with you. You are not alone. Let me pray. So Jesus, our suffering servant, Jesus, the one who took on flesh. Jesus, the one who cried out for relief. The one who is with us now and forever. We come to you and we ask you for your presence to surround us. You were moved with compassion so many times by pretty much everyone you met 
And so I know that I can ask with um, deep belief that you will be compassionate to each one of us in exactly the way that we need. And so I pray right now for the compassion of Jesus to surround each person. Whether this feels very raw or uncomfortable, whether it brings up recent or past feelings, I ask for the compassion of Jesus, the gentleness and the kindness of Jesus to surround you, to be with you. And I pray, God, that we would know you as the one who is present with us in the midst of, not before, not after, but the whole way through, the one who is present with us in the whirlwind of our own suffering. I ask that we would know you as the one who has promised that we would know you as God of promise, as Yahweh, of eternal, enduring, everlasting promise that goes beyond our own circumstances and even beyond our own comprehension. And I ask that we would know you as the one who remembers, the one who has heard every lament, every cry, every question, every doubt, that we would know you as that kind of God, as a God who remembers, and that when the time is right, we would know you as the one who promises to rebuild and restore and redeem. Come Holy Spirit, do your work amongst us. Be present with us. Minister to each of us as we turn to you. Amen.